there. Welcome. And thanks for listening along with Kingstown Communion, an inclusive and affirming United Methodist Church in the Kingstown area of Alexandria, Virginia. And our community exists to gather people, just like you here now, into communion with Christ and extend God's table into the world through courageous conversation, creative community, and collaborating for the common good. This podcast is just one way that we live this out. For more information about our church or to give to our ministry, visit kingstowncommunion.net. And if you live nearby, we hope you'll join us for worship on Sundays at Hayfield Secondary School. A reading from the book of James, chapter 2, verses 18 through 26. But someone will say, You have faith, and I have works. Show me your faith apart from works, and I, by my works, will show you faith. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you senseless person, that faith apart from works is worthless? Was not our ancestor Abraham justified by works when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and by works faith was brought to completion. Thus the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Likewise, was not Rahab the prostitute also justified by works when she welcomed the messengers and sent them out by another road? For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is also dead. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Richard. Um, so we are in um, week, this is week five, but um, we are in week two of this ch- James 2. Um, there are five chapters, spend a couple of weeks on this one, um, and we're in the second half today. And so James 2 is the quintessential chapter of James. It's the one that you know the book of James for because of those words that you have now heard read to you in some form, reworded over and over again in chapter 2 the same thing over and over and over again. Um, in, in Dirk last week, help guide us through these words at first. Faith without works is dead. And at first read, like the second half of James 2, it seems it's just like more of the first half of James 2. Faith without works is dead. Therefore, if you say you have faith, but you neglect the poor, as Dirk spoke of last week, what good then is your faith, James would say, line up. Line up, James says, line up your actions with your faith. Because if if they don't line up, your faith is as good as dead, right? Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Be the change you hope to see in the world. Love one another. Love your neighbor as yourself. Yourself. 
Here's a new one. Leave room for holy envy. That last one may not be as um, familiar to you. It, it comes from a Swedish bishop uh, and biblical scholar, Christer Stendhal. And um, Stendhal says, leave room for holy envy. And when I read the second half of chapter two of James, these are the words that I think of. At first, it seems like James is just repeating himself from the first half, a bit redundant, but, but let's, take a, let's take another look real quick together. Someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from works, and by works, I will show you faith. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe that and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you senseless person? You know, James is getting a little um, snippy. But do you want to be shown that faith apart from works is worthless? And then James gets into, let me tell you how you will be shown that. Let me tell you how you're going you're gonna to see that. And he launches into two stories, two different stories. Was not our ancestor Abraham, our ancestor, gives us a clue about Abraham, justified by works when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works. It's a redundancy again, right? And by works, faith was brought to completion. Thus the scripture was fulfilled that Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness and he was called a friend of God. And then story number two. Likewise, was not Rahab the prostitute also justified by works when she welcomed the messengers and sent them out by another road? For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead. Show me your faith outside of works, and I, by my works, will show you my faith. And, and James shows us faith through the stories of two very different people. It's the particularities of these two stories that follow those words James keeps repeating over and over again. Abraham's story, and also Rahab's story, but also your story, and we'll get to that. Today, James beckons us to open up to our stories, too, to open up about how our faith is found, its how its integrity is found in the unique particularities of our stories, the stories of our lives. When we open up to each other about how God has shown up in our lives, but not just that, also, how our faith is demonstrated through our ability to open up and be generous benefactors of the particular lives and stories of others. How our faith is open to, to the holy envy of another. And in doing so, James highlights with no mistake two stories, and we cannot mistake the kinds of stories he chose. One, Abraham, the father of God's people, the one called and tasked with being fruitful and multiplying for the sake of God's will and way for God's people Israel. And then another story, through Rahab's story, this Canaanite woman 
a woman of a region at odds with God's people, a woman of another religion and and another culture. And James here says that a part of opening up to who God is, a part of adulting in faith for us, is also recognizing her story as a part of God's story of faith matched with works. Wasn't she also justified by her works too? Leave room for holy envy. Holy envy of Abraham's faith. Leave room for holy envy of Rahab's faith. And so this Swedish Swedish bishop, Stendhal, um, was known for these words, leave room for holy envy. Um, And he first spoke these words, actually, uh, as one of three rules that he gave for understanding our neighbors of different faiths. It was um, 1985, and the Church of Sweden was a state church. Anybody know the denomination? Thank you. Yep. So, ding, ding. Yes. So Lutheran since the Reformation, and the Church of Jesus of um, Jesus Christ of Latter Day Saints was for the first time moving into um, Sweden, and was opening this new temple in Stockholm in 1985. And there was more than a little anxiety in Sweden about these newcomers from Utah. <laughs> coming into Sweden. And so Bishop Stendhal found himself in front of a microphone at a press conference. Everybody wanted to know his thoughts on behalf of the state Christian church, Lutheran to be exact, in Sweden. What did he think of this? This takeover, this big temple, this big um, you know, facade that's going to be now in the skyline of Stockholm and everybody expected him to exercise his office as a bishop by defending the traditional faith of the nation, but to to their surprise, he didn't. What he did instead was offer this brief ethic for engaging religious strangers, whether they were fresh from the other side of the world or had been living for generations like just on the other side of town. And he gives three rules. Rule number one, when you're trying to understand another religion, you should ask its adherents, not its enemies. Rule number two, don't compare your best with their worst. And rule number three, leave room for holy envy of them. Holy envy. It's this, um, this oxymoron, <laughs> as intriguing as like other words similar, like divine decadence or um, good grief, right? Uh, it's, it is a strange set of words for us this morning. How could one of the seven deadly sins be holy? What, what might make it so? And why is it vital for religious understanding and opening up to God and adulting in our faith? 
So when I was at Duke, I didn't have to take this class. It was not a part of my, um, my if anybody had a bingo card where it had Duke on it, okay, mark it off. But um, when I was at, uh, I, I didn't have to take this class, but I had to take some electives. And so um, it was a way to, we, we considered the electives a way to branch out into the other like worlds of the campus. Um, and so um, I took a world religions class. You would expect that seminary would include a world religions class, but it doesn't. Um, and the class was made up of um, people from all over the, the US, and this class also was made up of both graduate school students and undergrad, only class I took, where I was in this class also with undergrad students. Um, and they were from all different parts of, some of them from all different parts of the world, um, all different parts of the US, but 99%, and I'm only not saying 100 because I don't know for sure, identified as Christian in this class. And whatever reason they were at Duke, they now lived in what Flannery O'Connor called the Christ-haunted South. Um, despite, you know, there are 64 churches within five miles of this campus, and there were, there were still those students using their distance from home to get some distance from their childhood understanding of the world. And yet they, they still came confident in the unnuanced, unexplained lock upon their faith. One God, one Son, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, right? They came confident in that because, well, the Christian church prepares you well to come confident in that you know well there is one God, but even demons shudder and know that well. Which might be why this class always filled up. Um, every semester, it was full. And so it took me two, three different semesters trying to get into this class to finally get into this class. Sometimes there was a long waiting list and because students had questions about religion, they couldn't ask at home or ask in their church. And so um, it was so popular. And, and often they were given answers that they weren't satisfied back home, They'd, both about their own faith and the faith of others. And, but once word got out, <laughs> um, and it did kind of have a reputation, word got out that you could not pass this class unless you, and I quote, worship false gods and that there were free meals <laughs> on the field trips afterwards um, to temples and monasteries and messages and synagogues. Students did not care to see the syllabus before signing up. They just ran to it. What I knew and what, <laughs> and what they, they didn't was that this, the world religions, many of these undergrads didn't know, world religions can't be the scenic tour through the greatest religious traditions. I mean, that's what the, the textbook promised, right? Colorful maps and concise timelines and photos worthy of like National Geographic and all the essential vocabulary for these five major religions that we were going to talk about. Um, but, but this class couldn't, if, if it was going to make an impact on me or impact on anyone, it couldn't just be this scenic tour. There would be nothing to smell, nothing to hear, nothing to taste. There was, um, 
there would be nothing to eat if you just focused on the textbook. There would be no music, there would be no silence, there would be no body heat. Um, and so I was so grateful that I got the one professor that took us on field trips. And so we, we go to see Muslims and Hindus and Buddhists and Jews, people who, and in these settings, people who said inspiring things and for, also, hey, in these settings, forgot to turn off their cell phones in church and normal people, right? And who said, what, what a great question when we had questions to ask when we visited and, and people who said, come back anytime and, and bring your friends. And, and once that happened, like, you could just watch the students in this class fall in love with this. Students would never again believe everything that they had heard and been taught about people of other faiths. And, and when, they, when they got back on the bus after a field trip, you could see the, the gigantic cracks opening up the way they had seen the world, which is after all like the best education, right? To take to shake the foundations of what we know, like to, to so hard that like all the, all the things that are flimsy that we think are right fall away and they make space for all the stronger things, right? The stronger, truer things to be built in their place. And it could have happened in a classroom. Um, they could have invited practitioners in to, to teach on these various religions. A, a instructor, um, you know, could have... Uh, <laughs> It would have been easier in the end, not having to take care of all of these generally kind of unkept un undergrads and their bus um, etiquette. They could have brought in visitors who visited the class instead of going to see them, and the burden would, would be on them, though, to teach these classes, to find the college, and to enter the classroom, and to enter to these 25 pairs of staring eyes and endure the instructor's introduction that is not at all what you would have said about your faith, but the instructor's using the textbook and like to spend the next 60 minutes summing up their entire beauty and meaning of their faith as its sole representative as the you know, students begin filling their backpacks and then the bell rings and then you go on your way. Um, this was wholly different going on field trips. Uh, really, the whole inspiration behind us taking our confirmands um, on field trips or trying. Um, it began to transform you um, because being a guest transforms you much more than being a host can ever do. It, it levels the playing field immediately and it puts you in receiving mode which has a lot more to do with vulnerability and opening up than the giving mode does. And it accelerates the learning curve, finding yourself as now the minority for once and seeing the world through other people's lenses instead of expecting you, them to see it through yours. And one of the, the biggest surprises for people who, who got off the bus afterwards was, was that no one in these experiences ever tried to, to convert them. Since they expected others to do to them what they had done to others, the Christians were at least prepared 
to resist the evangelization that they were sure was coming to them. As often as they were assured that visiting a Buddhist monastery would would not make them Buddhist, any more than visiting France would make them French. They would, they would not, that some of them came, some of us came feeling very unsure, wouldn't bow to the teacher in the room. We kept our eyes open while everyone else closed theirs and, and we would just trust that Jesus knew while we were in this space that this was for extra credit and not for enlightenment, right? Hold fast, that we never be enlightened by it. One student in particular, I remember, um, he was an Episcopalian, and while all of us sat on like chairs like this, um, as uh, we visited this Buddhist monastery, um, he was in, he was in, insistent <laughs> on sitting on this little plump black pillow um, in the third row and um, getting the posture right. And and at, after you know after we finished up um, with this beautiful lecture on cultivating happiness. Um, he told us what it was like to be enlightened. He, he said, I, 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 I didn't know that it's my very, very, very first time, my very first time ever trying on meditation for size. And, and the, after the first 10 minutes, I felt this, this warmth coming up my leg and towards my heart and I thought, I didn't know my very first time I could be enlightened. And then I opened my eyes and noticed that the person next to me had just spilled their coffee and it was now running up my jeans. <laughs> and another man who had, had been much more concerned about going to the monastery shared that, um, that some of the rituals and ceremonies, uh, he was not sure whether he wanted to take part in, but, but when, he, when he arrived, it was, it was different. He, he was surprised that he could he could clear his mind during the meditation periods, reaching a place of calm that he had never reached before, and the whole experience made him think about changing his perspective about what's going on in his own life, and, and maybe, maybe what they've been learning in class, he said, maybe, maybe it is designed to change my worldview, and we all looked at him like, yeah, that's what it said in the description, but it was like there was this crack all of a sudden as he said the most obvious thing, this crack again, beginning to un- open up in, in, the under- in his understanding of the world. Learning the word worldview is troubling enough if you never knew you had one. But once you visit another one, it's, it's hard to deny that there are plural ways of seeing and being in the world which don't match up nearly as neatly as we really hope they would. All religions are not alike, for sure. There are as many irreconcilable differences between them as there are within them, too, right? How else, though, can we see our own faith more clearly without seeing it alongside that of others. When, the, when I experienced that kind of deep calm at a, a Buddhist monastery and, and, or sensed the, the deep reverence in a Muslim five times called a prayer, um, it felt like 
I was, Jesus was helping me see something new. But it also felt like Jesus was there. I can't explain it. And when, when, when I heard the drums in the temple or the sweet peace at a, a, like a Shabbat service, it, while it made some of us worried that we would lose our faith, in fact, some of them said when they called home to their parents to tell them all of these beautiful mind-opening moments they were having in this class that, that many of their parents were saying on the phone, well, make sure you're not falling for that stuff. That's why these words, holy envy, are so remarkable. Because we, ha- we have experienced the envy and we were, we were, we were relieved by it. Sure, that there was actually something holy in it. And then we began to admire, you know, the the high school football team in Michigan who kept training over and over and over again, even though they were in the middle of fasting during Ramadan. That, That could inspire them in their own faith to such great spiritual courage. I'll, I'll never know that. A few of us kept, um, I didn't, but a few of us kept a kosher diet during that, that class. And we noticed through keeping that kosher diet how hard it was to find anything to eat on campus and how much regard they had, the, the Jews had for, um, for, for God in every single bite they took. Even, even student, students who were atheists and like um, humanist, that was, was some, some of them said they were humanist, um, undecided, they warmed up to this idea of holy envy, which they adapted to, to meet them where they were in life. Um, one student said, I've, I've been ignited by a holy envy in a lot of ways. For, for instance, I, I love the Hindu notion that karma is not measured or judged by some higher power, you are responsible for your own actions. And whether I decide to believe in a religion or not, I will keep this moral code of self-accountability with me for whether or not I have faith, it surely must be dead if there are no works. And another said, when it comes to holy envy, one thing that really sticks out in my mind is when, when we went to the mosque on a field trip, the mom spoke to us ahead of time And what he told us is my holy envy. He he told us how he doesn't want to convert us to Islam. He just wants us to be better Jews and the best Christians we could possibly be, the best people we could be regardless of religion. And this this was his holy envy because it's the most beautiful thing he said he had ever heard and he wished Christianity was that way. How do you grade a class like this? <laughs> like, how do you measure a, person, a person's heightened empathy in a space like that, or like heightened tolerance for some level of existential ambiguity? It, it, um, it was always the experience of the class and, and not the content of the class that was transformative, right? That was what changed people. 
Nobody ever remembered most of the stuff, like do the Four Noble Truths go with Buddhism or Islam or does the Talmud belong to Hinduism or Judaism or did, one kid, um, did Constantine start the Pre Protestant Reformation? Um, most of us, most of us hadn't gotten our minds wrapped around all of these various pieces, but if we ran into our professor in the hallway, well, what we wanted to know was like, how is Swami? And did he get a cat like he said he wanted? <laughs> like, we wanted to know how Swami was because we remember how, how he was considering getting a cat for a pet. We wanted to know, um, hey, could we go along with you the next time your class visits the mosque so that we could tag along and ask the professor some more questions? And I began to understand the, how wholly important and how an evidence of sanctifying faith is, is our ability to open up to the stories beyond the Abraham story. The Abraham story, but also Rahab's story. Because we know the headlines. 11 killed in a, in a synagogue massacre. Suspect charged with 29 counts. Terrorist attacks in New Zealand. 50 people dead, at least 300 dead. An Easter Sunday attack in, in a Sri Lankan church and in, in hotels in that region. Or closer to home, we know our stories. How do we keep saying, leave room for holy envy under headlines like that? How do you keep believing that the way of life is to treat your neighbor as yourself or to do unto others as you would have them do to you with that? And I wish I knew, but, but it was through that class I saw at least just a local way to start being the change we saw in the world. And what we learned was that, that what we had most in common was not our religion, but our humanity, embodied in such diverse ways that we could open up to a little crack, could break in. That it began to seem like it, it is this, it was actually the will of the creator for that to happen. Not a deviation. For us as Christians, this is a basic tenet of our faith to which James speaks today, to see God's image in those who are not made in our image, to seek and serve Jesus in all persons, loving our neighbors as ourselves. Um, and so is it working yet? Is it working yet? What is such a core tenet of our faith? Are we yet cracked open? And maybe a better question is, why have faith at all? Is it, is it to make sure that we get into heaven? James seems to say kind of snidely, jokingly, um, you know, <laughs> even the demons believe in one God. Is it to make sure we go to heaven? Is it to, to rest in the confidence that you have a luck on God? Is that why we have faith? Or is it to discover how many faces the divine has and to practice giving yourself away every day 
to some perfect stranger like Rahab did, offering hospitality in the most unlikely circumstances as you learn to open up and be a better version um, of, your, of, the, of the person God's called you to be. Have some holy envy. Open up. Let's pray. God, we often think that um, being more assured of what you have done for us in Jesus is a sign of adult-like faith. And God, we stand here today as people, a church that professes um, in the death and resurrection of Jesus and, and the fact that you will come again and reconcile all things to yourself. But we also know, God, that, that our certainty has never gotten us anywhere good. It's our certainty that leads us, God, to um, compare the best of us with the worst of them. So much so that we um, have left little room for envying the faith of others with holy reverence, knowing, it, that it, knowing that it might guide us deeper and closer, open us up, crack us open in a way where we might be better worshipers of the God who was born and died and raised in Jesus. So open us up, God. not in a way that makes us um, denounce who you are, but in a way that helps us stand in, in the mystery of God in our right place, knowing that we can never We can never know you, God, without knowing all you've created. We join with Jesus in that prayer that he taught us. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Amen.